Good morning again. It's good to see you. If you have a Bible, go to 1 John chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 11 through the end of that chapter. Well, uh, yeah, the end of the chapter, verse 24. So I wonder if I ask you this question. It is, if, you, if you've been around church for a while, you, we talk about loving each other. That's something that happens. And last week, we talked about the love of God. George even introduced us, uh, our service today, in that way, reminding us that last week as we were looking at the text, we were pondering how lavish God's love is, that it would be of such a kind that it doesn't just make us his friends or his servants, but it makes us his kids, that get to be his son, his daughter, and how rich that love is. And now what John is going to do is he's going to turn our attention from that to what it means to love each other. He's going to say, if you are God's children, then you should love each other. So that's probably not a foreign concept. You're thinking, oh, I should love my brothers and sisters in the faith. Love within the household of faith is a pretty important thing. But I wonder if I ask this question, what comes to mind? So here it is. Think about your answer in your head. Why are we supposed to love each other? I mean, why does that matter? Why are we supposed to love each other for those of us who are Christians? So you just think now. Some of you are like, you're like, I got an answer. So, I, you know, perhaps a text like John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35 come to mind when Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples and he's washing their feet and he says, a new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So what, what did Jesus just do there? What he did was he said, there's something about my mission in the world that rests upon your loving one another, right? So when you love each other, the world sees that. There's a display of my love that helps them. And he's not just saying because he wants them to know that we belong to God, but because he wants them to belong to God. That's the presumption there. Do you see that? He's not just saying, so the world would look and go, wow, they're pretty awesome. They must belong to God. It's no, the idea is that they would, the world would know that someone who loves like that must know God because he's the only one that can make them love like that. Do you see that presumption in the text? That's, that's what he's saying. But let's take it one step further. Here's, here's the question. Why would the world looking at the church loving each other, why would that, why is that so central to his mission? I mean, the answer to the question of why love each other is because his mission is, in some part, dependent upon it. But you say, well, why? Why would it be dependent upon it? And the answer is not to jump ahead in, in 1 John, but 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 says, love one another because love is from God. In other words, love is of God. It's created by God. All that is truly love is something made by God. It's, it's the mark. There's something about love as he defines it, not as we just want it to be or as the world defines it, but love as he defines love is a display of his very nature. It's a display of his very character so that he rests his mission upon us loving one another because love makes him visible. Love as he defines it makes him visible. Wherever we love each other, he becomes visible to all those who witness it, all those who see it, and our purpose, our very reason for breathing is not anything other than to know God and to make him known, to make others know him, to invite others to see him. So if love makes him visible, then love becomes crucial for his mission. Now, we've got to ask one more question. Are we following all that so far? 
So here's the, here's the real, maybe, crux of it. Okay, why are we supposed to love each other? Because the mission in some part depends on it. Okay, why is that? Because love is a visible demonstration of who God is. But why love for each other? Why not love for our neighbor? I mean, can we all agree the Bible tells us to love our neighbor, those outside of our faith that don't agree with us about Jesus and his claims? We're supposed to love them. I mean, the Bible gets so uh, outlandish that it even tells us to love our enemies. Love the people who want to hurt you. Love the people who don't like you. Love the people who want to attack you. Love them. Now, clearly, that's commanded in Scripture, but again and again, we find this centrality of the mission of God related to our ability to love each other. So if I say the mission of God rests upon love in some part, why is it love for each other rather than love for those outside the faith? I mean, it's very obvious to me, like, oh, if I, if I love someone who doesn't share my faith, that might help them know Jesus. That seems obvious, yes? But then I go, well, how does loving each other, how is that not just like inward turned? I mean, how is that going to help anybody come to know Jesus that I love you as my brother or sister in the faith? And there are really, I think, two answers to that. Number one is that loving each other produces a maturity in us that helps us be effective in ministry. It produces a maturity in us, like not until we love each other do we become like really mature and when we become mature, then we become effective in ministry. Let me just show you, okay? It's not our main text, but Ephesians chapter four, verse 11 through 16, because this is so crucial, I need you to see how it works, okay? So Ephesians chapter four, verse 11 through 16. Um, I don't know if we have it for the screens. I don't think I put it on my notes for the guys to have it for the screen. So if you have a Bible, follow along, or you can just really listen. So listen to what he says. And he, God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for making God known. That's what the work of ministry is, okay? So what he's saying is he gives, he, he lists a couple of different roles or gifts that exist within the body of Christ. And he says they're there and they are, you know, these people with their gifts, they use them to equip everybody so that God can be known, Right? That's what he said so far. He says, and then he reiterates, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Okay, do you get how big a statement that is? He's just said, he's not interested in you just like crossing the starting line into faith so that you can spend eternity in heaven with God. He loves that, but he wants you to be like Jesus. He wants you to spend your life becoming like Jesus, to mature manhood, to the fullness of the stature of Christ. Do you, get, do you see? That's amazing. He's saying, I, this is what I'm aiming for in you, this kind of maturity of spiritual life that you would look like Jesus. And that's being equipped, being built up for the work of ministry. Now, here's where love comes in. So follow this. Oh, now I gotta find my place again. Guys, come on. I told first service, I just had to start wearing reading glasses. Good night. <laughs> I've, yet, I've yet to do it here, just for longer sessions of reading right now. But every time I have trouble finding my place, you're like, aha. All right, here we go. All right. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children 
tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, so this is the opposite of being misled, deceived, immature. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together, and here's the key, by every joint with which it is equipped. All right, if the metaphor is that we are a body and I am a hand and you are a forearm, what is the joint that he references there? It's the relationship between us. It's where we come together. So the joints make the body healthy. The hand may be healthy and the forearm may be healthy, but the body's not healthy until the joint that binds them together is healthy. And that means that we must love each other in order to be equipped together for the work of ministry. So then just to complete the thought now, he says, join held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in, can you guess the last word? Love. So all that, <laughs> thanks for your patience, just to make this point. There is the reason our love for one another is so crucial for the mission of God going forward in the world is that it builds us up into the maturity of Christ, the fullness of the stature of Christ. You can't be, let me just say it as plain, you can't be mature until you love each other. You will never be mature attaining to the stature of the fullness of Christ. I mean, that's, I, I gotta be honest, I don't even fully understand exactly what that means. It's such an outlandish thing to be that much like Jesus. And he's saying, it's love for one another, the joints where the body comes together that brings us there. So if you follow that, then that's the first reason why love is so, love for one another, not just love for those outside our faith, but love for those inside our faith, and our brothers and sisters becomes really pivotal for the mission of God. And then the second reason is because we're supposed to love each other so deeply and have such a special affection for one another that when those who don't share our faith look at the way we love each other, they go, I have no one in my life who loves me that way. I have drinking buddies, but I don't have a 3 a.m. friend that I can call and bear my soul to. I have friends, I, like, we share the same, like we like to ride bikes, and so we have our hobbies in common, but I don't have a friend who will hold my hand through the cancer and just be there at the lowest of low moments. I don't have the friend who I go to and confess the, just the deepest failure. I hide that from them. We ride bikes together, but we don't do that. And what the point of this is, is to say that you and I are supposed to love each other so profoundly that the world would, in a, in a sense, be jealous of what they see and say, I want that. I need that. That's why love for one another is so crucial to the mission of God and helping others know him. So here's the question that that begs, and I'll just invite you to a little self-examination. Do you love other believers in any kind of way that when someone else sees it, they might say, hmm, I want to love like that, and I want to be loved like that? Or are you more apathetic towards the body of Christ? Like, eh, I could take it or leave it. Actually, I'm kind of annoyed by other believers. Actually, I get so frustrated that they just don't, they seem so hypocritical. 
The church is the bride of Christ. If you don't love her, you don't love Jesus because you love, you don't love what he loves. He loves the bride, his bride with all of its faults and failures. He is purifying her and sanctifying her and washing her in the water of the word and bringing her to full maturity. He is doing that. Do you know that? So for you to be indifferent towards his bride, for you to be, uh, and, you know, have animosity towards his bride, he is not pleased with that. He is inviting you into deep love for one another as a way of his mission going forward in the world. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, so uh, let me just say, if you are a follower of Jesus, I should say, he's gonna give us help today. He wants to help you love each other. Isn't that good news? He wants to help you love each other. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I pretty much just told you what we hope for you today. You're in the right place. We're so glad that you're here examining faith and the claims of Jesus. And if you're skeptical, man, bring it. That's awesome. Uh, we want to help you know Jesus. So here's our hope is that you would see that we readily admit we don't always love each other well, but we also are striving to do it better and better day by day. And so our hope is that you would come to know Jesus because you would see a love among us that you would want in your own life. So I'll just be straightforward about that. That's our hope for you, okay? Now let me read 1 John for us and let's look. So he's gonna give us more than four things here. I'm gonna highlight four of them for you. Ways that he wants to help us love one another. And the beauty of this idea that God wants us to love one another for the sake of his mission is it does two things. It corrects two possible errors for us. So one error is the error of sort of being like, I'm in, I just want to be about helping people know Jesus. And so it's kind of a waste of time to build into relationships with other believers because I just want to be about unbelievers coming to know Jesus. But if you understand that his mission is in some part dependent upon the way you love other believers, you can't just treat relationships with your brothers and sisters as something that doesn't matter. You can't just sort of go, well, they're not serious enough about the mission. I'm leaving them behind. You go, no, no, actually the mission depends upon, in some sense, in some part, my relationship with them. It also, if you just are kind of turned inward and you just want to be in relationship with only other believers, as that's really just a way of self-affirmation by avoiding people who don't agree with you and feeling better about yourself maybe, being closed off to those who don't believe. If, if it's more inward turned for you, the correction for you then is to say the point of those relationships is not the relationship itself, it's the mission going forward in the world. So just using that as a way of self-affirmation to feel good about others agreeing with you and, and sort of being like, yep, we all believe the same thing and so we feel safe and we feel good and we feel protected. That's not the point. The point is that you would love each other so that others would see it and then want it in their life and then come to know Jesus. So let's look at how he helps us love one another. I'm gonna read verse 11 through 24, and then we're gonna work our way through it, and you'll see four things here that he does to help us love each other. So the first is this. Looking at verse 11, he says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So just very straightforwardly, there it is. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, when the world hates you or that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 
By this, we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whenever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. By this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. All right, friends, so I said there's four things here. There's a few places in that text that it gets a little confusing, so we're gonna just try and make it very plain today, all right? But the first thing we see is pretty straightforward. My guess is you see it immediately when I say it in the text, is that he, gave, he helps us to love each other by making love a command and then by giving us the spirit so that we can obey that command. So a lot of times this text pretty much flows from beginning to end, but one of the things that biblical authors will do often is they will put bookends of a point that they wanna make to highlight its importance. And so that happens here. It's in verse 11 and verses 23 and 24. So the beginning and the end of the section. And you notice at the beginning, he just said, this is what you've heard from the beginning, that you should love one another. So he's highlighting there. He's like, this is the point of what everything I'm about to say, love each other, right? And he points out that it's from the beginning as a way of saying, this has been the consistent message. It hasn't changed since the moment you came to know Jesus. You've been hearing this all along. Love each other. So for instance, when you come in here today and I say to you as your pastor, love each other, is anybody shocked by that? I would hope not. We've done a pretty bad job. If anybody walks in and goes, wait, what? We're supposed to love each other? And I'm like, yeah. And Jesus is saying, you've heard this from the beginning. This is what I, look. From the beginning, you knew, love each other. But then if you just hear that as a nice suggestion, if you just hear, oh, okay, yeah, love each other, that, you know, it's maybe an optional, it's like the 401 version of Christianity or like the super Christians do that, but the rest of us, we don't have to worry about it. He says, no, no, no. Go down to verse 23 and 24, where he says, find my spot again here. He says, and this is his, what's the word there? commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Now there's the gospel. The first thing is believe, believe. Your salvation is not by your works. But then when you believe, the next thing is, and love one another just as he commanded us. He's gonna say it three times in two sentences. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. So the first thing he's doing is he's saying, man, this is the goodness of God. He says, I'm, I'm gonna give it to you as a command. Now, Again and again, we will say to you that our salvation does not depend upon our works. It's not by what we do. But that, friends, I wanna make sure, doesn't cause you to dismiss the importance of commands in the life of a believer. Because those commands and obedience to them can't save us because none of us can keep the commands in a righteous way that would lead to eternal life. It's not possible. But we don't then go, awesome, he has saved me by faith, by his grace, and therefore commands don't matter. No, no, no. The person who has been saved by grace through faith 
then finds the commands of God to be life-giving and longs and wants to do them. So our obedience is no longer to try and earn salvation, but it is an obedience born out of love for the fact that we have been saved. And so we don't minimize the commands, we delight in the commands. We say, oh, like David in the Psalms, your word is life, sweeter than honey. Your commands are what I want. I long for your commands. I want to obey your commands. And where I find a part of me that doesn't want to obey, I want that part of me to die because I cherish your commands. And they give me life. They show me what, what good is and what evil is. And I love them. And so he makes it very clear. It's a command. Praise God that he gives us commands, yes? You never have to wonder, is this right? Is it good to love each other? He's like, no, no, it's, it is right and good. It's a command. Now, here's the second thing. It's good to take up commands. And here, by the way, once you take the weight of your salvation off commands, they now become possible. Because before, where I was trying to earn something through them and I could never do it, they just crushed like balsa wood under a weight. But where I now have them as something that comes out of my salvation, now I'm actually taking the wrong kind of weight off them and putting the right kind of weight on them, the weight of growing and sanctification. Now, here's the real beauty, because what he commands, he also empowers. Do you know that that's true of God? He never commands you of something he does not empower you to do, which is amazing. That's why at the end, he says, look back at verse 24, when he says, and by this we know that he abides in us. Now stop there for a second. You just read this whole passage. What would you expect the next words to be? If you've been following along, you expect the words to be, here's how I know that God is living in me, abiding in me, because I love my brothers, because I love my sisters. That's been the whole point of the whole passage. Would you agree? But what does he say? It's not that. He doesn't say, oh, this is how I know that I belong to God and he's in me that I'm in him, I love one another, I love other brothers. He says, no, here's how you know, by the spirit whom he has given you. Well, is he just making a left turn? Is he just all of a sudden going, no, no, never mind. It's not loving each other, it's the spirit. No, he's bringing the two together. If he's putting them together in this one passage, then what he's saying is, I'm commanding you to love one another. That's the evidence, or one of the pieces of evidence that you are in Christ, that you belong to me, that you are you find love for these other brothers and sisters in your heart. And so then when he comes to the end of the text and he says, here's how you know you abide. And he says, by the spirit, he's saying, the spirit is the one who is in you, empowering you to love each other. So what has he given us to help us love each other? Clear commands to do it. And the spirit to help us obey those commands. You know, if you read through your Bible, kind of beginning to end, right? If you ever go on a uh, read through the Bible in a year kind of a journey, one of the things that is, that is so powerful that if you're kind of paying attention as you go is as you're reading through the Old Testament, you know, you're seeing all these beautiful illustrations pointing towards Christ and, and the whole movement of the text is moving that direction. But then you get into the New Testament and we're gonna about to establish a new covenant God's gonna make where he's gonna say, I'm, I'm gonna establish a new covenant with people through Christ. And the old covenant's gonna pass away, right? And without getting into all the details of that, one of the things that's so powerful is the second you hit Matthew chapter one, all of a sudden, where you didn't hear much talk of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is on every page. All of a sudden, it's the Spirit of God moved this person to do this. The Spirit of God came and spoke in this way. The Spirit of God, do you know why that's happening? 
Because one of the things the Bible is telling us is one of the major markers, distinctions between the old covenant and the new is the new covenant comes with the indwelling presence of God through the spirit. It's one of the things that is almost perhaps chief of the things saying, you wanna know the difference between the old covenant that really only produced death and the new covenant that now produces life? The new covenant comes with a new power because God lives in you through his spirit. I cannot emphasize how radical that is. That the Spirit of God himself takes up residence in his people. <laughs> so when he says, I mean, in some sense, we could just full stop right there. Love each other and the Spirit. You wanna know how or you wanna know why you're able to and how God's gonna help you? Man, he put his Spirit in you. He'll help you love each other. So that's the first thing, okay? Now let's move to the second thing. Here's the second thing he does in this text that's really pretty incredible to help us love each other is he takes away the competition between us that produced a hatred between us. So let me show you what I mean. In verse 12 through 15, he says this. He says, we should not be like Cain. So he's alluding back to Genesis chapter four, Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve, and Cain kills Abel. And he says, we shouldn't be like Cain, who was who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So here's what he said so far. He's saying, why did, when you don't love each other, you're being like Cain. And in verse 15, he's really gonna hit us in the face with it in just a second, okay? But he says, you're being like Cain. And why did Cain kill his brother? Because he couldn't stand Abel's righteousness. Abel had done something that pleased God and Cain had did something that displeased God. And the nature of that wickedness in Cain was that it could not stand the righteousness of Abel. Wickedness hates righteousness and wants to destroy it. And then he goes on in verse 13 to emphasize that that's the way of the world. That's the way of the devil. In verse 13, he says this. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Now, he's almost pausing for a moment to go, yeah, you can expect that those who don't know God are going to hate you as you display the righteousness of God, as that's on display in you. It's the way of the world. And so he's saying, it shouldn't be like that between you. If the world, if those who don't know God, don't, like, essentially don't want to see a display of righteousness and godliness, that shouldn't be true among you. And so then he goes on to say in verse 14 and 15, and we're gonna tie this all together now, he says, we know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. So what's he saying? He's saying the reason love for one another is, the, is one of the major pieces of evidence that you're no longer dead in your sins, but alive in Christ. The reason is because the thing that used to cause the hatred between you is gone. That sense of competition that when you're righteous and I'm not, I now have to hate and destroy you because it's a competition. And when you outperform me, I can't have that. I've got to get rid of it. And so there's something in me that now feels animosity and hatred towards you because there's a competition. Now, I've been told a time or two that I'm pretty competitive, okay? How many of you have been told that you're pretty competitive? Okay, a few of you, yeah, absolutely. Um, it kind of comes out on a basketball court. So I don't think I'm as competitive as other people think I am, but I don't know who's right, okay? 
But here's what I will tell you. I have a hunch, and it's a full-blown theory at this point, that everybody's actually competitive if you get them in the right environment. Right? Some of you might not be competitive if I get you on a golf course or if I get you in a, on a basketball court, but boy, I break out some Uno <laughs> and you're gonna be ready to take some names. All right, you might, it might be kill or be killed when phase 10 comes out. Now you have a real problem if that's your issue, okay? And we're gonna visit with you after the service, okay? Ever? It's all well and good when it's basketball and we're just trying to, we're just playing a game, right? And at the end of the day, we shake hands, well done, we move on. But when there's a competition in us over who can be godlier, who can be more pleasing to God, do you see that that's a works-based righteousness? And when we had to earn our salvation, or when we thought we could, we can't, but when we thought we, that's what we had to do, my good works have that way, my bad, essentially everyone becomes my competition. Everyone becomes either someone over whom I shine because I'm doing better, or I look less because I, I'm not doing as well as they are. And that produces animosity and hatred. And what John is saying is that's gone now because what God has done is he's taken away your need to earn righteousness. You don't have to earn it anymore. So they're not your competition anymore. That thing that used to make you hate them, it's gone. The way of the world, it's gone. You are now saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. And when that's the case, you can love people not feel animosity towards them. Do you see that? It's radical. And he's saying that's, that's what's happened. And look, he wants to be so blunt with us because in verse 15 then he says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. He's just quoting Jesus, by the way. <laughs> who, do you remember in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, I, you've heard that it said don't commit adultery, but I tell you, if you look at someone with lust, you, you've committed adultery with them. That's what's in your heart. You've heard it said, don't commit murder. I tell you, if you hate your brother, you've committed murder. He's saying what's in your heart is what was in Cain's heart. That same wickedness, that same evil, that same sin, it's there. And you may say, I've never murdered anybody. And say, no, in your heart, you've murdered. You are guilty. Now, that's all John is saying here. And he says, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So he's saying to you, be sober-minded about your competition, your animosity towards your brothers and sisters in the faith because it is evidence that there is, a, there is something there that is not right. And so friends, the, the diagnostic question for all of us today that we need to ask is to say, do I find animosity towards my brothers and sisters, towards other Christians? Is there any place where I recognize that there is what is tantamount to murder in me, where I would say, I would rather you were dead than you were here. That's what he's inviting us to see. But again, what God is telling us is that he has given us what we need so that animosity does not have to exist any longer, which is such a deep gift. All right, so, so far, here's what we've seen. He wants to help us love each other. How does he help us do that? We just heard that he removes the animosity or the hatred between us because we don't have to compete for righteousness and he's given us a command and the spirit to help us keep that command. Now let's look at the third thing. The third thing is that he shows us what love is and he shows us both in practice and by experience, okay? And let's tackle those. Let's do experience and then practice. Look at verses 16 through 18 because he's gonna say, here's, here's what I'm gonna show you. I'm gonna show you what love is so that you know what it is so that you can do it. So you can love each other. Verse 16, by this we know love, 
that he laid down his life for us. Full stop, right there. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. There's two things he's, at least two things he's saying there. Number one, when he says, by this we know, do you get what a claim he's making there? He's saying, if Jesus had not come and died on the cross, you would only ever have a partial understanding of what love is. It's through the cross that the world now has in front of it a full display of what love is. Otherwise, we'd all be wandering around in the dark saying, I kind of, I kind of have a sense of love. I kind of have a sense of what it feels like. I kind of have a sense of what it looks like, a sense of what I should be thinking about when I think about love. But when the cross comes and displays God's love in Christ, hanging there to redeem people from their sins, to bear the wrath of God for them, the sacrifice and the humility of the cross and the intentionality and the satisfaction of the justice of God displayed at the cross. Now the entire world has on display for itself for all time, this is love. This is what it is. You never have to ask again, what is love? This is love. By this, we know love, that he laid down his life for us. So the first thing is, he gives us a visible demonstration of it. Now, the second thing is that word know, there in the Greek, in the English, we can just kind of read past it. It's the word gnosko, and it means an experience of something. It doesn't just mean knowing something here. It means knowing it here, knowing it in my will and in my heart and my emotions, knowing it in my mind, knowing it with my whole self. That's what that word means. So when he says, by this we know what love is, that God sent his son and he laid down his life for us, he's saying there's something about the cross of Jesus that hits you here and here and in your gut and your will. Every part of you is impacted by this action. Every part of you. And my guess is if you're a follower of Jesus, you've experienced something of that. Have you found the cross to hit you at the level of your emotions? You've ever been in tears thinking about the sacrifice of Christ for you? Have you found the cross to, to cause you to ponder the mystery of the will of God and his redemptive plan through all of human history and just stretch your brain in a way that you go, how does this work? This is unbelievable. To ponder the depths of the love of God in your mind and that you just chew on it over and over. Have you found that it actually impacts your will where you say, I, I, I now renew my will in the direction that is righteous because of the cross of Jesus when I think on it and it just, it hits me here. That's what he's saying. So praise God. Because we know what love is through the cross and we have an experience of it that shapes us and changes us. So you want to love each other? The cross is there to bring an experience, a holistic experience of the love of God to enable you to love that person sitting right next to you today. And the person who's on the other side of the sanctuary because you got mad at them last week and you don't want to sit anywhere near each other. So then he doesn't just show us how to love. He didn't just give us the cross as an experience of his love that we take into ourselves. He also gives it to us as a demonstration of what love is in practice. So there's gonna be one really big one and there's gonna be a, like a daily, they just do this every day, right? So look at what he says. Verse now, follow from verse 16, just that one phrase and now look what follows it. So he said, by this we know love, 
that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now, it's very tempting to read that and turn it into a statement that is essentially saying, I should live a sacrificial life where I'm helping other believers out. But do not minimize what he just said, because he just talked about the cross of Jesus. Was the cross of Jesus a symbolic death or a physical, real death? It was physical and real. That's, that's really important. All right, chuck the sermon. Let's go back to cross 101. I'm just kidding. Yeah, I know you know. You just don't like to talk. It's okay. So listen, when he says, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters, he's literally saying, if love requires me to die physically, then I should die. If God puts me in the circumstance or the situation where love for a brother or sister requires me to give up my physical life, then I should lay down my physical life because I have a savior who laid down his physical life for me. This is the length to which our love is to go. So don't minimize it. Don't turn it into a symbolic sacrifice or like a live sacrificially. That's gonna come in a moment in the day-to-day, but he is starting with the big one. And he's saying, if I am to be willing to lay down my physical life, to stop breathing, if that's what love requires of me for you, and that's what I should do, is there anything else I should withhold from you? The answer is no. This is the way we're supposed to love each other. Let me tell you why. If my, my purpose in life, and yours too, if you, if you know Jesus, your purpose is not to live a long life. Your purpose is to know him and make him known. And if making him known through a visible demonstration of love that involves laying down your very ability to breathe any longer is what is required of you, then it makes no sense to hold on to your life. To live a long life in no fulfillment of your purpose makes no sense. But to live life in fulfillment of your purpose that perhaps is short but meaningful and purpose accomplishing, that makes sense. And that's what he's saying. That's the extent to which our love for one another is meant to go. Now, I get that that's a huge statement, especially if church is a hobby for you. It's like I show up, and I listen to somebody talk a little bit, and I like it, and I like the songs, and it's just kind of like a good, it's what good people do. And maybe I network a little bit. Friends, if we've sold you that bill of goods, I'm so sorry. Let me correct that right now. We are supposed to radically love each other and follow Jesus to the ends of the earth and do whatever it takes to make him known. This is not a hobby. This is what our whole lives are to be spent doing. I I don't mean gathering in here and talking. I mean, knowing him and making him known. That's it. So, that's the big picture. It says you you are to give up your life for one another, right? Now, the reality is that many of us, most of us, are not going to be put in a situation, and John knows this. It's not the normal experience that most Christians are going to encounter situations where they, they literally need to sacrifice their life in order to, because that's what love requires in that moment. That may happen, but it's not the day-to-day. So guess what he does next? He just goes, all right, 
I know that's not gonna be the case every day. I know it's not gonna be the case for most of you. So let me go to the day today now. And look what he says then starting after verse 16. Verse 17, he says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. So you see what he did. John just goes from be willing to give up your very life to love each other. That's the practice of love. And now let me turn to the thing that may be hardest for you in a day-to-day sense, your material goods, your money, your things. Use them to love each other. Be willing to give them up. So if you encounter a situation where a brother or sister has a need and you have the ability to meet that need, you are to meet that need. Now I want you to notice a couple things about this command. Number one, there are no limitations on it. And that's on purpose. He doesn't go, give until you've reached point X. Give this amount, and then you can stop. You're good. He wants you to have to constantly go back to him and say, what do you want me to do, Lord? Show me what to do. Again, the point of this is not, I give of my material possessions until I don't have any, and now everyone else is gonna give to me. The point is not give until there's like, everyone has the same amount, and then none of us need to give anymore because we got to equal, everyone's equal with material possessions. That's not the point. It's much simpler than that. Here's the point. In the course of following God in your life, you are going to encounter other believers who have needs. And if God has put something in your hands that helps meet that need, you are to give it. Just so simple. That is the daily demonstration of love that you are to have towards one another. Somebody needs something, you have it, give it. And just keep doing that as God leads you and as he shows you. Every time, turn back to God and go, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? What have you put in my hands? I'll give you a beautiful illustration of that. Again, just daily, small. Don't build it into something that is um, overwhelming. It's meant to be like the daily expression of love. Last week, we had a new family who came to our church, got a flat tire pulling into the parking lot. Bummer, right? Okay, God's not against you coming to church. He didn't cause that flat tire, okay? We're glad you're here. They pull in, this sweet family walks in, and they're like, bummer, we got a flat tire. Uh, We got two folks, two members who just happen to be standing at the door, and they say that, and one of them happens to go, well, what what type of car is it? And they didn't have a spare in the car. I should have said that. No spare tire. And they go, well, what type of car is it? And he goes, oh, it's it's a this type of car. And the... And the other member goes, one of the members goes, oh, I have that kind of car. To which then the other member goes, well, do you think that's an accident? And this member goes, oh, yeah. Let me go get my spare tire. Gives him his spare tire, helps him put the spare tire on the car, and voila. Practical act of love. Isn't that awesome? God brought him, had the flat tire. Immediately, he gives us an opportunity to just go, oh, yeah, I have something that you can have. Here you go. Let me give you an act of love. I mean, it's just, it's so simple. Such a small thing, but such a wonderful and beautiful expression of love. And now the last thing I want you to see here, and then we gotta move to the kind of the trickiest part of the text and and then wrap up, is when he says this down in verse 17, when he says, if you see your brother in need and close your heart against him. So what he's saying is if I don't give the thing that that I have that would help, 
that I'm closing my heart against them. So, but the other implication is that I am to, what's the opposite of closing my heart against someone? It is opening my heart to them, right? And so he's saying, I want your heart to be engaged in this. I don't want your giving to be sort of begrudging. So I can close my heart by not giving. I can close my heart as well by going, ah, fine, right? And that's not, he's saying, no, no, I, I want you to go, oh, yes, I have this. You can have it. I would love for you to have this. I want you to have this. Like, he wants what happens in you to be like a, this is awesome that I get to give you this thing. Well, how could I ever keep this? That's lame. I want to give it to you. That's what he wants. And he says, don't close your heart. Open your heart. He's saying, do it joyfully. Do it in a way that, I mean, how loved do you feel when someone goes, yeah, I guess you can have my thing. Do you feel really loved by that? You're like, okay, thanks so much. Checks in the mail, I guess, for this. He's saying, no, 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 like, give it in such a way. Like, have you ever had someone that's just so excited to give you something and it just feels so loving? It's not even whatever they gave you. It's that they were so thrilled <laughs> to give you the thing that they had. And then when you got it, you just went like, I just, like, I'm, I'm, I'm lit up. I feel so excited. And why is that? It's not because of the thing that they gave you. It's because they loved you. You experienced love. That's what made you feel, you know, the warm fuzzies inside, okay? So now let's look at the last thing, shall we? All right, so we've seen he gives us the command. He gives us the spirit to empower the command. He takes away the animosity between us by making salvation by grace through faith. And then he also gives us that demonstration of love, the experience and the practice. Now, last thing, now follow this. He reassures us with our love to make us love. He reassures us with our love to make us love. Now, follow this. It's not as complicated as it seems. Look at verse 19. Actually, start in 18, because he said, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. All right, so here's what he just said. He said that when you go before God, and you go to pray, right? And you're talking to God. He's not just talking about when we're before him at the end of time. He's talking about now, here and now. When you're before him, what, what is gonna give you that sense of assurance, reassurance, that you belong there? That God is saying, yeah, I'm glad you're here. You belong to me, I belong to you. We're in right relationship. What's gonna give you that reassurance? It's verse 18. He said, loving in, not in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By that, we will know that we are in the truth and our hearts will re, be reassured before him. Everybody follow that? And so then here's what he, now watch the picture that he paints because you go, okay, great. He's gonna reassure me by reminding me that I have done practical acts of love. I've gotten things out of my hands into the hands of others who needed them. And when I go before the Lord, he's gonna go, remember that you did that? That was Man, that was evidence that I'm in you. Pretty cool. Then he's gonna say this in verse 20. For whenever our heart condemns us, have you ever found that your heart can condemn you? Yeah, he's being very pragmatic. He's saying, look, here's the reality. You're gonna go before God and your own heart, not the devil, not the enemy, not just your insecurity, your heart, because your heart is, is still, you know, has some issues is going to try to convince you you don't belong in the presence of God. 
is gonna say to you, who do you think you are? And your heart is pretty knowledgeable to some degree about those stuff that's still in there that you don't like. He says, whenever your heart condemns you, what does he say? God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. In other words, there's nothing your heart, he knows you better than your heart knows you. He is omniscient and omnipotent. He's pointing to the power of God and the knowledge of God and he's saying, okay, in that moment when your heart condemns you, God is gonna be stronger than your heart to overturn that condemnation that you feel. God is wiser than your heart and he's gonna overturn in his wisdom that condemnation that your heart is kind of perpetuating. But how does he do it? What is it that God's gonna do in that moment when you go to prayer and you feel that condemnation? What is it that God is going to point you towards? What is it you need to seize on and take hold of in order to silence that condemnation and go deeper into the presence of God in prayer and in joy and in love? What is it? You think he might say, well, the spirit or this, that. He already told us. It's verse 18. He reassures us through our past righteous actions of love. So that, here's what, God, here's what he just said God will do. God will remind you of how he empowered you to love other believers. And when he reminds you of that, it's gonna reassure you because you're gonna know you didn't do that in your own strength. He did it through you. And that will assure you that you belong to him. Isn't that cool? So let me just recap here what, we just, what we've learned through all this. God is so good that he commands the act of love, gives us a command to make it plain. He's so good that he empowers the act by giving us his spirit. God is so good that he doesn't just command it and empower it. He also removes the barriers to that action by taking away our hatred of one another because we don't compete for righteousness anymore. And God is so good that he then demonstrates the act on the cross to give us a once for all perfect visible demonstration of what it means to love so we never have to wonder what love truly is. And then he's so good that he takes our obedience empowered by the spirit and uses it to reassure us of our place with him when we feel condemned. How good is God? Here's what we just learned. God, 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 God. At every turn, he empowers it. He brings it about. He reassures us. He's the one. How magnificent is he? <coughs> Friends, I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. God is inviting us to walk out of here and this week to love one another by taking whatever's in our hands, whatever he's given us, and using to meet the needs of those that we encounter that might have a need. So let's pray that he would do exactly that because he's the one through his spirit that will empower us to do it. So Father, we pray, we love your word, and we pray that as we've tried our very best to comprehend it, to study it, to take it in, that it would do what you've promised it would do, which is being living and active, and sharper than a double-edged sword, that it would then never return void, that it would produce a, a harvest of righteousness among us and in us and through us. So we pray, Lord, that as we leave this place today, um, that you would give us opportunities to love one another and that we would take hold of them. Help us to do it. Thank you that you will empower us to. Help us to see them. Don't let them just, don't let them just kind of pass by and, and have us miss them. And we pray now that as we sing to you, 
that it would just be from a place where our hearts are full of having heard about your goodness and now wanting to celebrate it by giving you praise as you are worthy of that praise. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. Stand and close our time by singing.